Austin Winsberg. Welcome inside the crazy ant farm, man. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you guys? Oh, man, we're doing awesome. Man. Hell yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited about this conversation because we have got a lot of listeners who, like ourselves, are huge fans of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, and we we cannot wait to talk to you about that. I have so many questions. It's it's not even funny. Um, <laughs> I'm here to answer almost all of them. Almost all of them. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> as long as I can get some of them answered, it's going to be awesome. Exactly. exactly. Whatever you want, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, what we like to do, though, first is kind of start off with a little introduction about who you are and how you got started in the industry and everything to kind of get our listeners up to date on if they may or may not know your background a little bit. So let's jump in. Uh, Was writing and acting and entertainment something you always kind of knew you wanted to do from an early age or did you kind of discover it later on in life or how'd you get started in it, man? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how far back you want me to go, but I knew I wanted to do something in the entertainment industry since I was very little. I, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I started off as a child actor. Um, I was not a very successful child actor, <laughs> and I may or may not have gotten fired from Punky Brewster when I was 10 years old. Oh, oh my wow. gosh, Punky Brewster. <laughs> um, you know, it's hard. It's one thing to get hired on Punky Brewster. It's a whole other thing to get fired from Punky Brewster. Right. Uh, yeah, I can uh, imagine. So I just always, and then another uh, notorious claim to fame early on in my career, if we can call it that, is I was also in the uh, movie Ghost Dad with oh. Bill Cosby. Whoa, there you go. So this is a, an early uh, infamous uh, appearance by Austin. And so I always had a desire and an aptitude to do something in the business, and I thought it was going to be on the acting side. But going back to like 11 or 12 years old, I started reading uh, Daily Variety, which was the entertainment trade magazine. Yes. So while all my friends were like off playing baseball or whatever, <laughs> I was like reading the trades and I would obsess over all the films that were in production in the back. Remember back in the day, they had all of the like, you know, these like every film that was shooting in LA or out of Absolutely. LA. And I would obsessively read the like the names of the movies, who all the players were. Mm-hmm. I knew all the names. I was kind of like a walking IMDb before IMDb. <laughs> yes, <And> dude. <laughs> so awesome. I was just. No, I was going to say, I'm the same way, man. I remember when you actually had to pick up Variety to read it. It wasn't online. You know, you had to actually get the trade. Yeah, dude. Yeah, no, I had a subscription. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I was like 11 years old or something like that. And so I just always, you know, I started to become obsessed with certain TV shows really young. Like, I was obsessed with Ray's Company when I was eight or nine years old. Oh, definitely. I was into Silver Spoons and Different Strokes and Growing Pains and all those shows. But the first show that I remember being really into in a different kind of way was Twin Peaks. Yes. Um, Twin Peaks came on when I was in like eighth or ninth grade. And I just remember obsessively watching it and trying to figure out who killed Laura Palmer. And I, I was never like a, one of those, uh, you know, a really obsessive fanboys. Right. But I became that for that show. <laughs> and I would have, I would have all of the, like the maps and the characters on my oh, wall. Shit. And I read the <laughs> diary, and I would do deep dives every week into that show. And that was the first time that I started to understand more of like a interaction with a television show sure. and kind of a more engaged, engaged viewing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of going on a tangent now but no you're I ended good up going to, i ended up going off i ended up going to theater camp in the catskills when i was 14 years old a very famous theater camp called stage door manor awesome and a lot of uh famous alumni have come out of there like natalie portman and bryce dallas howard mm-hmm. and john Cryer and josh charles and sean levy and all these people and when i was at that theater camp uh as an actor I met a friend who was this child writing prodigy. Oh, okay. And he had been winning all of these young playwriting competitions all around the country. And 
at the time, I guess they still do versions of this, but you could submit plays when you were a kid to all these different festivals, and then you'd get professional actors, if you won, to do a staged reading of your play or sometimes oh, shit. That's a awesome. production of your play. And he started sending me his plays to read, and I started reading them. I was like, oh, I could do that too. So I started writing plays when I was like 15 or 16 years old. Probably about 16 is when I started. And I won this L.A. Young Playwrights Festival five times before I was 19 years old. Oh, wow. And there was something about writing that I started to feel like I could use more of my personality and still get more fulfillment out of what I was doing beyond just the acting in ways that I felt like I couldn't get from the acting. Mm-hmm. I think when I was acting, I was always, I'd, I'd get parts and plays and I'd do okay. And I stopped kind of, kind of acting professionally when I was around 14, but I would do all the theater and I was a theater major in college. But I would always kind of play to the back row. Sure. And I would always be, I'd always be thinking of what my next line was. I was never just living <laughs> organically in the moment or like reacting to what the other person was saying to right. me. I'd always be like, had a version in my head of how the line should sound. And so I never Felt, felt like I was a really great actor, but I did feel like when I would write a play or a sketch or anything comedic or something like that, that I would kind of get a different sort of fulfillment from it, mm-hmm. and I would, it, I just felt like it was utilizing more of my personality, and I started to feel like I could get the same kind of fulfillment behind the scenes that I felt like I was getting being in front of it, and from that... I started writing screenplays in college, and then I convinced that friend to come to Los Angeles right after college. We became writing partners together, and we started, and we got an agent when we were 23, and we started writing on our first TV show when we were 23 or 24 years old. Yeah, that is amazing, man. I mean, I love the enthusiasm, and right away you know, hey, maybe this isn't working for me. Maybe the acting thing isn't working for me, but I've got to do this. This is my passion. I've got to find another way, and you jump right into the writing. And dude, hitting it so young, man, that's fantastic. Exactly. That's truly inspiring for me because I'm 23 right now and that is definitely where I want to be. I got some stuff in the works and that is definitely where I want to be. So I'm going to take a lot from this interview. <laughs> Just oh, that's great. Look, I mean, I have lots of advice about it too. So I'm happy to give you whatever two cents I can about my way in and how it worked and all of that. That's fantastic because we always have that in the show as well. So we're, <laughs> we're definitely going to get to that. And speaking of so young, I mean, you were also, if I did, if we did our research right here, uh, the youngest showrunner in ABC history at one point, right? When you had Jake and Progress on, you were like 27 years old with your own show, right? Yeah, 26 or 27. I think what, what happened was, so my friend and I wrote on this show together called Glory Days, which mm-hmm. was a show on the WB before it became the CW. Right. And it was a Kevin Williamson show, the same guy who did Dawson's Creek, but he also did all the Scream movies mm-hmm. and the following, and he's done a lot of horror stuff along the way. And... Uh, we were brought onto that show. The show was kind of supposed to be like a soft drama about a guy who writes a book about his, his small town, and then he moves back to the small town, but he hates him because of it. And after they picked up the pilot, we were going to be brought on as like the, the young comedy guys on this hour-long drama show. <laughs> okay. But after they, after they picked up the show, they decided that they had enough kind of, at the time, I forget what uh, Everwood and some other shows were on uh, WB at the time, mm-hmm. and they felt like they had enough of those kind of soft dramas, but... Kevin was really the horror guy. So they wanted to turn the show into more of a horror murder mystery show every week. And they wanted to keep the same actors, the same sets, and the same writing staff, but figure out how, after the fact, to convert the show into something it was never intended to be. So our very first job was writing on this horror murder mystery show, and we had, (laughs) it was really like trial by fire, learning on the job how to like, how to, you know, uh, 
do those act breaks and the red herrings and the murderers and the suspects and all that stuff, which was something that was so far out of our wheelhouse. Right. right. Talk and about that a was challenge. Our very first writing <laughs> job on a TV show. Wow. Oh, that's fantastic, I, though. I, I, I remember my darkest moment on that show was we had spent days trying to figure out a plot and a structure for one of these episodes, and we came up with this big twist at the end of Act Six that we thought really solidified the show, and we're like, okay, now I know how to break these kinds of stories. And I went home that night, and an episode of CSI was on television, <laughs> and they literally did our twist oh my goodness. as like a throwaway in the cold open oh. at the beginning of the episode. And the thing that we thought was like the big reveal was like a nothing thing for them. Hell yeah, at like, the beginning of the show. be writing this kind of show. Oh my so, gosh. So then the next year we got, we wrote another spec at the time in LA or in, in writing, you know, you were really encouraged to write spec episodes of TV shows that were already on the air. Right. So our first two specs, I believe were Malcolm in the Middle and that 70s show. And then we wrote a scrub spec. And off of the scrub spec, we got hired on this sitcom called Still Standing mm. that was on CBS for four years. And in the middle of year two of Still Standing, I came up with the idea that became Jake in Progress. And so I went from being a story editor, which is a low-level writer on Still Standing, to being the showrunner on, like, my third job. Yeah, that's Ooh. just, I mean, whew. Yeah, talk about that jump a little bit, man. I mean, was that a little overwhelming? Did you feel like you were ready for that? Or, like, what was that like? Or did the trial by fire from the last one, like, get you prepared? Exactly. For that? <laughs> that's so crazy. No, I mean, there's no way, like, I, I would say at the time, sort of ignorance is bliss, and you're sure. young, and you think you can do everything. And I don't know if I was really prepared for all of the different things that being a showrunner entails. I yeah. mean, you're doing 7,000 jobs at once. When you're just a writer in a room, your main focus is just, you know, especially if you're a low-level writer in the room, you're mostly there to listen and observe, and hopefully you can throw in an idea every now and then. But going from that to being the guy in charge is a completely different deal. Oh. And I think that I went into it with... Um, not you know having a little bit of experience and seeing what some of that was like, but I really didn't know what I was what I was setting being set up for. I didn't know what that looked like at the time. Sure, and then again, I, I, one of the things that we really like is the realism that we get from a lot of our yeah, guests. Exactly. And I love somebody who's had such success early is bold enough to say, "Yeah, no, I was out of my league. I, I had no idea what I was doing." I mean, exactly. I, I you know, love that, you know, because that happens sometimes. And learning right? by doing. I mean. We got the rug, I got the rug really pulled out from under me. So I had a very clear concept of what I wanted that show to be. Right. And the initial concept or conceit of that show was it was going to be 24 had been on TV for maybe a year or two at that point. Mm -hmm. And my initial idea for the show was that it was going to be a romantic comedy version of 24, that we were going to take all the stakes <laughs> and the importantness and all of the things that happened on that show and apply it to a romantic comedy because I've always loved romantic comedy. Sure. So season one was going to be the first date of this couple, and the entire season was going to take place over this one night, kind of like the movie After Hours, mm -hmm. um, just on this date and everything that goes wrong over the course of this night. Season two was going to be their wedding day. Season three was going to be the birth of their first child, and you're going to take all these important moments in a relationship and dissect them minute by minute, hour by hour, as all these events pile on top of each other and using all the stakes and the craziness of those days. And that was the idea that got John Stamos excited. That was the idea that got the network excited. And then we went off and shot that pilot. And then in the middle of shooting the show, the regime changed at ABC at the time, and a new president came in. Right. And he said, I'm picking up your show for 13 episodes, but I want to lose the girl, and I want to lose the 24 concept. Mm. And I said, well, what's the show of that? <laughs> right, and, exactly. And he was like, well, you know, John Stamos dating in New York City. Uh, <laughs> who doesn't want to see that? And so on the fly, I mean, truly, the 
pilot episode ended with the two people leaving to start their date and mm-hmm. all of these loose threads that were going to play out over the course of the night. And by episode two, they just, they just wanted him dating in the world, almost to sort of ignore everything that happened uh. in the pilot. So I was like, at least let me do one more episode where I wrap up what I was planning to do over the entire right. season. And then we can start to get into more of like what his life looks like outside of that. And so they were like, they were like, okay, well, I don't really see why you need to do that, but all right. So they they let me shoot one more episode to wrap up that storyline ish. And then they wanted like there was a character on the show who was meant to be the antagonist that they liked so much that they wanted to be the best friend going forward. Yeah. So I had to figure out how to make the antagonist <laughs> into a friend. So there were all these challenges beyond just the normal challenge right? of being a showrunner, twenty six or twenty seven years old. I had to completely on the fly convert the show into something else than what i originally intended oh wow. my goodness <laughs> wow i mean it's just, that's so you, crazy it is you hear about it all the time like you know th- that a project that what it starts off as is not what it finishes yeah. as or you know you you do these revisions or you see these things but to so quickly have somebody come in and say no we're gonna just change everything good luck that's got to be just intense i right. can't even imagine and i mean does that happen often does big brother kind of like poke their nose in often on it like if you're writing a show does that happen often for somebody to come in and try to change it or at least change little aspects of it uh i would say that is my normal experience no oh wow and and that i mean i've done this on the movie side you know i've been i've been working this business a long time now i've right. sold a lot of pilots and a bunch of movies along mm-hmm. the way a lot of stuff that would get close and never got made right and uh, I mean, I, I, my, I don't even want to tell you how many pilots I've sold over the years, but I've sold everywhere, every network, and in cable and streaming and all of that stuff. And I would say that the bulk of the time, the majority of the experiences are the thing that you set out to do mm-hmm. somewhere along the way. Someone has a note or a two or three that derails the vast majority of the thing that everybody got excited about initially. Damn. And that the final product is not the thing that you set out to do in the first place. And so you the constant challenge and the constant struggle when you're in the development phase, which I've been in a lot over mm-hmm. the years, is how do you stick to your guns? How do you maintain the things that you think are important about the idea or the project that you're there to protect while also appearing to be a team player, mm-hmm. while appearing to not be difficult, while being able to take the notes and to understand the notes that do actually make the thing better? And it's been a learning curve and a balancing act over the years trying to figure out how to go from okay, well, which of these ideas are useful? Which of these actually do make it better? And if these things are harmful or perceived to be changing the, the fabric or the core of the idea in some way, how do you articulate that in a way that still shows that you're part of the team and that, they, that you guys can all work together? Absolutely. That's I a mean, lot to balance, it, man. <laughs> it is a lot to balance. But I, and I just That's why I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. I mean, because there's, like I said, there's so many people out there probably trying to figure that out. You know, they've got this great spec script or they think they've got the best, you know, feature film script that they in their hand and you know not realizing that what they have might get sold but might never see the light of day and or might get sold see the light of day but be completely different from what they intended it to be from the beginning so i'm I'm so glad to have somebody likely most likely it won't sell right and then and then the next phase is if it will sell most likely they're going to want you to change everything (laughs) right and then most likely after they want you to change everything it won't get made (laughs) yeah I don't mean to be the the voice of doom and gloom, but the the percentages of things that actually get made is so small and so rare. 
And there's so many reasons, many of which have nothing to do with the quality of the script for why things get made or don't get made. And I can't tell you how many writers I've talked to in the business where it's like, this is not a meritocracy. It doesn't always mean that the cream rises. Sometimes it does. And if you work at it long enough and work hard enough and persevere, we can talk about that in terms of Zoe and my career. Sometimes it breaks through. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, the vast majority of the things, I like, I can't tell you how many years that I would write these pilot scripts that would make it to the two yard line, and I, and I would sell them, and I would get paid for them, and I would have a nice living off of it. Right. But it would make it to the one or two yard line, and then the last second, I'd be like, ah. Instead of yours, I think we're going to make this other one. Uh, like I know at least half or a quarter of the shitty script I wrote that year was as good as the other shitty pilot. Right? <laughs> oh my I goodness! I love that though. I love the realism. Can I swear, can I swear on your podcast? Of course, oh, yeah, dude. man. We, we, we have the, the E. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, explicit welcome. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, okay, that all of that kind of leads me into then Zoe's because, and I'm very curious as to because I've got some questions about, especially with what you just said about you know you've always kind of got Big Brother looking over and wanting to make some changes or adjustments here or there or whatever. For anybody, first of all, who has not seen Zoe's extraordinary playlist, one, what is wrong? Are you living under a rock? Right. You should definitely have already seen this show. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. Just to kind of set it up, it's a it, it's about a young woman who who's uh, a coder, a computer coder in San Francisco, and she's kind of like trying to make her way in this male-dominated world, and she's got a best friend that's kind of secretly in love with her, and she doesn't know, but now she does know, and she's kind of in love with another coworker. She's dealing with some family issues with her dad, who has a disease that's that's made him unable to communicate and speak and move, and she's worried that, and let me know, Austin, if I'm messing this up, she's kind of no, worried that maybe <laughs> she is also going to down the line have this problem so she goes to get checked out um i'm I'm giving away the whole pilot but uh when she gets checked out kind of like an earthquake or an event happens while the music is playing and everybody's freaking out and everything but she's okay she comes out of it and from that point she can now hear other people's thoughts or know other people's thoughts but the catch is it's all through musical numbers like these giant musical numbers so there you go now i know everybody's gonna rush to see it who hasn't seen it yet because it's brilliant (laughs) um and first Not of everyone all. loves musicals, and so <laughs> yeah, I don't know if everyone, but you know, people who have seen the show, a lot of them, one of the biggest compliments I've gotten so far is that it doesn't feel like a musical. And it people doesn't. who wouldn't normally be people who wouldn't normally be drawn to musical type movies or shows actually really like the show they just need to watch it and see that it's not necessarily the thing that they think it might be absolutely and i think that the reason for that is once they watch it is because yes it does have musical numbers and it is a musical in a sense if you will but also it's this dramedy you know there's there's heavy drama but there's also comedic moments but there are characters, you know, not just Zoe, but all of these people, and I think it's so brilliantly written that you immediately connect to. I mean, if you watch Zoe and there isn't a character in that show that you can connect to, something is wrong. Because I feel like there is somebody in that show that if you are watching it, you are that. You you said, I've been there, I've been through that, I'm going through that. And I think that's why it connects so well when people watch it and people are jumping on board so quickly for this because you can relate. I mean, it's one of those shows where you can just attach to a character and, and you're there in there, you know? Who do you attach to? Uh, oh, by far. I have gone through where I lost my father early as well. Um, so I just, my whole dynamic, and I'm sure you saw with the tweets and everything, the whole family dynamic between Zoe and, and her mom and dad, I'm just completely attached there, by far. 
thank you. Sorry to hear that about your father. Oh, no, thank you. And that's where I want to get into this because of what you said earlier in the in the interview about Big Brother coming in kind of this if if I'm not mistaken is based on your life and your what you went through with your father. So, when you come, you know, and you get picked up and you have a project that is so personal and based on on reality and kind of what you've gone through, how is that approach when you do have somebody maybe from the network come in and say, eh, we want to tweak this or we want to tweak that? I mean, how do you even start that process when it's something so personal about yourself? It's a great question. First of all, I have certainly written projects over the years that have been personal to me. Mm-hmm. And I tend to write a main character a lot of times that feels like a Ben Stillery, Matthew Broderick-y, <laughs> um, kind of the, the the Jewy, neurotic, Woody Allen-y, Austin character that I have written a lot of times sure. that feels like some sort of offshoot of me in some ways. Um, I think this project, though, far and away, is probably the most personal that I've ever put out there. Um, there might also be a connection to why this one got made and other ones haven't because of mm. how personal it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you that from the genesis of this idea, and I can talk all about where it came from and everything, uh, only one time in the process, and this came early on when I got Paul Feig attached as a producer on the show, he suggested one change that I ended up agreeing with that changed the whole fabric of the show. Other than that one change, I've never had a development experience or an experience working with a studio or a network where people have been more supportive or more on board from the very beginning. Oh, that's And fantastic. this is the only time I can think of truly in my career where there has been zero interference and anything that I've wanted to do, they've been on board with. And any notes or suggestions they've had have only been things that have helped it. So I've never once felt, and I'm telling you guys, in 20 years, I've never felt this in my career where... I have felt the the levels of support and encouragement where it's not about what can we change of what you're doing, but how can we help what you're doing. Oh, that, that I'm so happy to hear that because, and I think the reason maybe for that is, and I can't speak for the networks or for, or for the suits, but it because it is so unique, it's so original and so out there that the whole concept of it, I, I think it's just why would you want to change anything? Is the one thing that you mentioned that uh, the the fact that it was originally told from the father's point of view and then it switched to Zoe's is that the one change? No, or? I mean. So the the way that this idea originated was my father passed away in 2011 from a rare neurological disease called progressive supranuclear palsy. Mm -hmm. And right before that, my father was a very dynamic, vibrant, athletic, outgoing, 67-year-old man. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he started falling backwards. He started slurring his words. We went to see some doctors. It was very hard to diagnose. There's a whole subset of these neurological progressive diseases where it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on right away. Right. But within a couple months, we were able to sort of pinpoint that he had what's called PSP. And from onset of diagnosis to him passing away was less than a year. Oh, wow. And... And during that time, I was becoming a father while losing my father. Mm. And I was really close to my dad and watching the kind of utter disintegration of a human being, but still knowing that his brain was working while his body was betraying him was just a very complicated, sad, traumatic, uh, emotional time in my family. And I knew... After that time, at some point, because I've kind of always tried to be inspired by or write things that feel personal to me, that at some point I would want to write something about that time. And I would want to write something about becoming a dad while losing my dad. And I didn't know what was necessarily the right outlet for that. And for the first few years after it, I was too close to it and I wasn't ready to do it. Right. And 
what ended up happening is over the years, I've sold multiple musical projects. Uh, I sold a musical to ABC years ago with Adam Shankman, who directed Hairspray. Uh, I sold a musical to Showtime with John Legend. I sold another musical with Christina Aguilera to Freeform. Uh, I'd really been in, and I, I'd really been in this musical space, and also I did the live sound of music for NBC, right. and I had a musical on Broadway a few years ago. So musicals over the last five, ten years have become more of my focus and an area where I've felt connected. And again, this goes back to my theater past. This goes back to Stage Door Manor, always loving musicals and using song, thinking that songs could be a great way to express characters' emotions and really being drawn into that. And so finally, when I was thinking about what could I write about my dad and I during that time, I had an idea one day, well, what if the father... Um, experience even when he's sitting there on the couch and he can't speak and he can't move, what if the way that he's experiencing the world is through musical numbers? Right. And when I thought of that idea, it kind of made me smile. And instead of feeling sad or depressing, it felt more joyful to me and happier. And I started running with that idea, and I talked to my friend who was an executive at NBC who I had worked with before, and we started talking about it. And she liked the idea but was worried that it maybe felt a little sad or a little small if it was all from the dad's point of view. So she said, is there just any way to open it up so it's not just from the dad's perspective? And then I started thinking about, well, what if there's a character, what if there's this guy who somehow gets this ability to hear people's inner thoughts as musical numbers. And one of the things that he gets from that is he's able to communicate with his father in a way that he can no longer communicate with him. So that was really the genesis of the whole thing. And as I was working on that, and I came up with a whole pitch with that, and I think he was a computer coder in San Francisco, and I think there were two women at work that he was battling over, and a lot of the dynamics were all in place. And I went and I pitched it to Paul Feig, and Paul Feig, a lot of his philosophy and where he focuses is on more women-centric and female-driven projects. Absolutely. And he, said to, and he said to me, I love it, and I'll do this with you, um, but what if the lead was a female instead of a man? And I thought about it for five seconds, <laughs> and it, it, instantly I was like, you know what? It actually doesn't change any of the fabric of the things that I like about the show, and in many ways it makes things deeper. So, for instance, like when I started thinking about computer programmers in San Francisco and learning about women in that world, there's so few women in that world, and there's lots of reasons for that that have to do with early age, not women not learning or being educated that science and math have value and STEM and all that kind of stuff. Right. And it, I actually started realizing, like, you know, it actually it, it puts more. There's more stakes in the show. There's more that she has to work against if it is a woman. And I like the idea of a woman who sees the world in very binary terms, very black and white, hides behind her computer, isn't good at dealing with other people, getting this ability, and the ability forces her out of her comfort zone in order to deal with other people. And that was the change. That was the one change I had. Oh, and then and that was before we even went to the network. And the second we and from the time we went to the network on, it's all been everyone's been on the same page. And again, none of it was anybody uh, twisting my arm. It was simply one suggestion from Paul Feig that I liked and I ran with, and the rest is, here we are. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, well, I've got to say, phenomenal casting. I mean, the the cast on this show is absolutely unbelievable. Um, first of all, I can't say this enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you for bringing Lauren Graham back to television. Uh, <laughs> um, but Jane Levy, I just it could not have been a better choice for Zoe because the the expressions that come across her face when she's not saying a word and what she's able to convey are just absolutely brilliant. And then uh, Skylar Aston, I mean Peter Gallagher, Mary. 
Jerry Steenburgen. It's just insane the people that you got involved with this. How did that process come about? Because I mean, th- th- these are just phenomenal names. Was it was it a difficult casting process, or did you know right away who you wanted, or how did that go down? Yeah, I mean, so right away with Jane and Mary and Peter and Skyler, they were the first choices for the roles, and. They read the script, and I met with each one of them, and after that first meeting, they all said yes. Wow. Um, And Lauren came into it later. We actually had cast somebody as the boss initially, and we ended up recasting after the pilot, and Lauren was a godsend and perfect for the role and has been great for us. And then the other people, our casting director, Robert Ulrich, is um, cast Glee. And so we had... Everybody who came in for the parts of Simon and Mo and Leaf and Tobin and I'm trying to think if there's anyone else, David, the brother, um, they everybody would come in and they would sing two songs at their audition. So for weeks, people are just coming into the room and singing for us, <laughs> almost like American Idol or something. Yeah. And then they would read the scenes. And from the second that John Clarence Stort came in for Simon, he had a history with Jane. She actually recommended him because they had worked on What If together. Okay. Um, he made us cry in his audition. He oh, was wow. so emotionally raw and vulnerable and awesome that it was almost a no-brainer with him. And same thing when Alex Newell came in. Alex was on Glee, so Robert brought him in. Initially, that part was written for a woman. Mm-hmm. Alex is a male who was female representing. Right. And we saw 300 women for that part. And Alex came in and was just so funny and unique and different. And um, also, I thought, lent, it, lent to like an interesting other kind of dimension in San Francisco. Uh, and I just thought, like, who better to be Zoe's... You know, the character of Mo was always meant to be... Zoe's a closed-off person. Mm-hmm. Mo is very open. Mo is very open to the world, open to people, open to new experiences. And Mo is also kind of a musical savant. And I just love this interesting dynamic that I thought would be there between uh, Jane and Alex. And Alex just, first of all, his voice, he's like Whitney Houston. He is, <laughs> he's touched by God. He's next-level talent. I've right. never seen anything like it before. And I just thought he was so winning, and the two of them together were so winning that it was just a no-brainer. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Their dynamic is, is phenomenal from the get-go. I mean, almost from the start of the pilot episode. I mean, it, it, it's immediate. Uh, it just It's unbelievable what you've been... And so I want to jump into this because the playlist, <laughs> pardon the pun, but the playlist for the first couple of episodes has just been absolutely insane awesome uh huge fan of the music and, and it keeps up like that all season oh that's not. good that is really good yes. to hear so what my question is because i mean music clearance can be a nightmare for anybody who's not familiar with the process it, it is not fun it is not easy and I, I know that there's a couple of different ways that you can approach this right because i know the rules are a little bit different if you're actually using their the actual artist's music or if you're using the music but performing it yourself. It's, it's a different set of rules, right? Because I, I would have to imagine that the music budget on this show is insane. You still have to go through all similar sorts of clearances to get the rights to the songs. Right. There are two different price points, and there's two different ways. that There's like mechanical rights and 
Rights, I'm, I'm, I get the words wrong, but there's different kinds of rights. So one right is like a performance right, which means you're using the actual artist. And then there's another right, which has to do with who wrote the song, who owns the song, okay. to get their permission to do your own version of their songs. So we do have a sizable music budget, but it might not be as big as you think because we're not getting the performance rights as well. Interesting, because I was just like, when you open up that giant Beatles like performance, I was like, oh, wow, what did that cost to make? I mean, you know. Yeah. So- <laughs> and, you know, it's, and, you know, it's funny because when we did the pilot, people were like, you know, I don't, there's a lot of songs in here, Austin. I don't know if we're going to get all the songs. And I was like, honestly, guys, the two songs that are most important to me in the pilot are Help and True Colors. And I wanted Help because this is the first time we're seeing a big number on the show. Mm-hmm. I wanted a collective feeling that everyone is feeling that we all need something. What is an idea that encapsulates that? Well, I think we all need help in some way. And Zoe's job in the show is going to be to help people. And so... The, the fact, so on day one, I, I said, look, if we can get True Colors and we can get help, we can try to figure out other songs for everything else. Right. Those are my goals. And somehow on day one, we got help and True Colors, and then we got every other song that I had scripted in the pilot. And truly, to this day, we have not had anybody say no. No, that's... There were, yeah, there were five times throughout the season where I had to write personal letters to the artists or musicians themselves asking for their approval to use their song. Uh, and we were able to get songs cleared that our music supervisor, Jen Ross, who did, who did Empire and Smash and some other big shows, mm. so she's been in this world a lot. She was like, good luck, but this one, just so you know, like it's almost impossible to get a Beastie Boys song. Beastie Boys <laughs> almost always say no. And I wrote a letter to the Beastie Boys, and they said yes. That is crazy. That is so insane. Definitely. And, and one of the rules that I had for the show, and I had a lot of rules, one of the rules was that at least in season one, I wanted to make sure that every song that we use is a known song. And the conceit of the show allows you to use songs any genre, any time period, it, which was part of the built into the conceit of it. But I wanted to make sure that within that, you know, that, it, and when I say known songs, like my musical knowledge is probably not as vast as Logan's. I have like a, a medium knowledge of music, but I don't have an ex- crazy extensive small bands, indie stuff. I don't, it's not quite that, that's not quite my thing, but certainly popular music and top 40 and hits and all of that kind of stuff. So it was very important to me that every song we used to show was a song that I knew because I felt like that is the best way to bring in a large audience and make it feel universal when it's songs that everyone knows. Okay. That, first of all, awesome. Because like I said, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people comment on the music about, uh, on the show. Um, and then I want to compliment you, first of all, because at the top of the interview, I said that I was attached to the, the, the family dynamic of the show. I think those, the, the, the most powerful scenes for me are, are, when you see them, that scene on the yacht with the with the boating was just absolutely incredible. I mean, the, just the moment where the the hand comes up and they touch hands, dude. I, I can't even express to you like that. Literally brought a tear to my eye. It, it was that good. So, um, I mean, talk to me about that a little bit. Was, how does your family like? How are they dealing with watching it? Is it is is it a is it a positive experience for them, or do, do you get a phone call every now and then going that was a little rough to watch, or how's that? Yeah, definitely for my mom. I think that uh, my mom has always been very supportive of my career and always supportive of me uh, writing personal stuff and stuff that means something to me. I think that in so many ways, Peter is really channeling not only the disease, but he looks a lot like how my dad looked during that time. Uh 
And it was interesting because being on set, there would be times where I could compartmentalize it and just say, this is my job, this is the scene I'm working on. Right. And then every once in a while, he would give a look or do something that would bring me so vividly back to a moment in my own life. And I'd get sad or choked up or start to cry, and I'd leave set for a few minutes and kind of gain my bearings and come back. Um, but I have been able to look at it somewhat from a distance and realize, like, this is, uh, I'm doing this for the show. Uh, but my mom, you know, I think it's one thing to sort of in the abstract know that I'm doing it. It's another thing to see every single episode of the show. We do something that happened in my house during that time. Wow. And I think for her, it's definitely uh, bringing back memories and an emotional experience and sometimes feels vulnerable. And I think she's surprised sometimes that I'm going there. I don't okay. like, I didn't tell her everything that I was doing, so she doesn't know all of it. <laughs> um, and I think she's just... Um, you know, on the one hand, she's proud and she loves the show. And on the other hand, I think it's challenging for her. I think my sister um, has a little bit more of emotional distance from it. So she's able to be a little bit more objective about it. Mm -hmm. But certainly for my and my, my wife and my brother-in-law, we were all around. We were all experiencing it during the time. So I think that it brings back different memories and emotions for all of us. Okay. And the next question I have, because, and I really want to kind of talk about this because like I said, our, our, our listeners and our, and our followers are, are of this, this generation and of this target group that you're trying to reach. I thought the the marketing strategy here, because I couldn't tell you, like, I was wondering at first, like, okay, here's the pilot. Now it's disappeared. What the hell is going on? Um, you know, so let's talk about that a little bit. It was like the, the pilot aired and then there was this like huge effort to like push it onto the to online sites and social media and all these different aspects of where you could watch the pilot, you know, to, to target a certain I, I, young females, right? 18 to 34, the target age and the target range that you're looking for. And talk about that a little bit. What was it like when, the, did you know about this or did the network kind of come to you and say, hey, we've got this idea about how we want to do this to kind of lure people to TV? What, what was that like? <laughs> um, well, the network... First of all, they do believe that a big portion of the audience is 18 to 34-year-old women. Sure. And I think that the show is also universal because I've gotten a lot of anecdotal stuff from people who are younger, people who are much older. I think this show does live beyond that oh, in a big absolutely. way. I just think that's definitely a big target group for them. That target group isn't watching TV in the same way anymore. Exactly. And no, you know, I don't know too many 18 to 34 year olds who maybe even have a cable uh, subscription anymore. Who even who even watch TV? Like I, I do. My wife and I, we don't watch TV live anymore. We DVR something or we watch it on Netflix or Hulu or something like that. Times have so shifted and changed with how people watch television, and I think that NBC from the get go knew that this wasn't a simple-to-market show because it's not just another legal show or cop show or comedy. It mm -hmm. kind of uh, goes across many different genres. And so their idea, which they've never done before, was how do we get this out to the most people possible? How do we build work? They're really, they've been, again, like I said, they've been so supportive. They really love the show. Um, they're like, how do we get the most eyeballs to see this, and how do we start to build word of mouth for it? And their philosophy about that was, let's preview the show in January. They had a big promotional platform right after the Golden Globe uh, yeah. during the Golden Globes to air a lot of ads for it. Let's put it out there on television so that we can then put it online for five or six weeks. And they did. They they blanketed the internet with the show so that it could become accessible to anybody. And we got over forty million views just yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, that's not counting all the other sites that it was on. Um, and so 
I think it was a way to bring eyeballs and awareness to the show and to build word of mouth from people who don't who aren't aren't watching TV in the traditional ways that people used to watch television. I think all networks now, all, all you know, not cable and streaming, but the ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, they're trying to figure out ways to bring viewers back, and they're way more interested in the live plus three day number, live plus seven, live plus thirty, yep. live plus streaming. They're not looking at it in the same way anymore of the overnights because a hit show now for them. Gets it's like a point seven rating, and a less hit show gets a point five rating. We're not; it's so different from the from years past. And I think that NBC is being st- smart and strategic about let's just get as many eyeballs on it as possible. And that was their philosophy, and they'd never really done it before, and it broke all sorts of uh, digital records for them, which was really exciting. So I, even though it sounded unconventional to me, I was also encouraged by it because they put so much uh, marketing muscle behind it and really believe in the show, and the intention is just how do we get as many people to watch it as possible. Absolutely, and and it worked, clearly. I mean, I, mean, yeah. I, I know the ratings were, were really solid for episode two, and, and the word of mouth is just, I, I tell you, I hear people talk about it all the time so i know the word of mouth is getting out there and and i know that people are enjoying it so uh congratulations man thank you and they they put episode two on youtube again i don't know if i don't know how much they're going to be doing this past this but already in like two or three days we're up to six or seven million views on youtube already so it's interesting like it's just times are changing with television and the way people are viewing stuff is different and the networks are starting to understand that they have to be more creative about the ways in which they're getting eyeballs on their stuff well okay so let's talk about social media then uh, because you guys do the live tweeting and you know so many shows we've seen now have gone to the live tweeting during the episodes um, and you guys did a brilliant job last week with that that talk was about- my first time ever doing that I got on Twitter for the first time a week and a half ago <laughs> so we'll talk about that then a little bit what, what, what's your thought on the whole social media process in the entertainment game like are you a fan of it or are, are you okay with it or do you think it can be one of those double edged swords where it can be a really good thing but it can also kind of be a bad thing what, what do you think about it well I think I spent a lot of years just ignoring it <laughs> and, and pretending like this wasn't the new way of doing stuff. Uh, and then you start to realize, like, with Instagram, with Twitter, with Facebook, with all of this stuff, this is the way that things build awareness now. This is the way that you get a more um, active and motivated fan base. So I think, I guess the only way that it's negative is in some of the toxicity of things that happen on social media. And if people don't like something or can turn on something, uh, you know, it can certainly hurt emotionally. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but I would say that 95% of the feedback that I've read on social media on Zoe's has been so positive and so enthusiastic that it's, it's enabled me to not dwell on the 4% that say <laughs> negative things. Well, that's um, a good thing. And, and so uh, I think it's just, I, I think it's part of the new order. It's the new world. And I think that, you know, you see this with actors too, like their value goes up uh, the more followers they have. And, you know, so I just think that it's now part of the whole publicity, marketing, awareness. And the other part of it too, I think, is authenticity. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, one of the things I've strived to do with Zoe is not only make it as authentic to my experience with my father, but really learn who these actors are and try to give them stuff that feels very authentic to them. And I think part of what people like about social media is it does feel like it's a more authentic representation of who these people are. I know there's the whole side of it that feels like you, what's your Instagram self versus your real self or how do you present yourself on social media. But I do think it's a way to be closer to celebrities or, or performers or writers than people ever have before. And so my philosophy now that I'm starting to lean into it is to just try to be honest and authentic. And I think that's what, especially people who are on 
sites like that. I think that's what they respond to. And I think they sniff it out and smell it when it feels inauthentic. Absolutely. And I mean, come on, it's got to feel good, right? You're a fan. You, you know, you like a particular actor, you like a particular show. They're live tweeting, you're following along, you're enjoying the show and you get a response from one of those people. It, it, it's bound to make them feel good. It's bound to make them, like you said, feel like that was an authentic response to something that they took the time to tweet. And it's going to draw you to want to do it more, to watch the show more, to, to follow along with the people more. I, I, I do think it's a good idea. And I love the fact that you bring up authentic because I do believe that that's true. And I think it does make people feel good that they are drawn to a certain thing and they can get a response from somebody that's involved with that certain project. I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. I mean, I think the only danger for me is I get a little addicted to these things. And so now <laughs> every two seconds I'm checking Twitter. It was like, this is probably a reason why I wasn't on it for the first 10 years. It was so out there, whatever. It's because now literally I'm like obsessed with looking at Twitter and Facebook and all of those things. And I will say the other amazing thing that's come of this so far is at least a hundred people have reached out to me now on social media who have family members who have the disease or have passed away from mm. the same disease as my dad. And that's been uh, very emotional and touching to me and also surprising because it's a very rare disease. So every day I'm getting all these this amazing feedback from people who have lived with PSP or PSP-related diseases. And so it does feel like it's building awareness. It is landing in other ways besides just entertainment. And that was something that I don't think I ever anticipated while doing it. Oh, that's, that's so good to hear. I mean, Logan and I talk about that all the time about, like, you know, if you can use art and you can help one person. If you, if what you do touches one person, then you've done your job. That you know, and I, I feel like to hear that, to hear you say that is is a wonderful thing because I think that's something that you know a lot of people view it. Yeah, movies are great, television shows are great, or anything, but it's art and your expression and you're putting yourself out there. And if you can connect with somebody and help somebody that might be going through something that you've gone through, I, I think there's no better way to help the world than through art. Yeah, and show people that you're just not alone in a situation, especially like you said, people reaching out to you with the same disease or the family members of the same disease. It, I bet it shows that you are not alone in the situation. Other people are going uh, in the same situations that you were going through. Yeah, I mean, I remember when my dad was going through it, I, it was so isolating and it was so there was this one website, curepsp.org, that I would go to and kind of read these testimonials, but mm -hmm. I didn't feel any connection to other people going through it, and you feel very alone during it. And so the fact that there's forums for this stuff now and that people are reaching out, I mean, it's definitely emotional. I cry reading some of these uh, these messages that people send me, but I also feel like um, there's good in there too, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. And I mean, I bet it helps them out probably even more knowing that someone of your caliber with your success in the entertainment business that even you you're also a normal person going through these things so it helps them out as well well said going back to like the up-and-comers for writing and everything what advice would you say that you would give to up-and-coming writers producers anybody behind the scenes that might have to deal with big brother in the entertainment industry what advice would you uh, give to them and what pitfalls would you say to try to avoid well the first thing i would say is to keep going, to persevere, to keep writing. Um, this is sort of more writer advice, but, you know, to not give up. To I, I've met a lot of people over the years who say they're a writer, and you're like, well, what, what, what have you written? And they're like, well, yeah, I'm kind of starting thinking about an idea. I might be It's like, no, either, like, if you're a writer, write. Exactly. Write a script, write a play, write a short story. 
uh, write a spec episode of something on television, but actually put in the work. And you could spend so much time talking about the work rather than actually doing the work. And I don't think that's actually really writing. And I think you learn. I mean, I, I wrote this in a Facebook post the other day, but it's like the whole Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing. Mm-hmm. I've done... I've done 10,000 hours plus 10,000 hours plus 10,000 hours plus 10,000 hours. Like, it, part of it is really about putting in the work. And I don't think you're really being an artist if you're just talking about being an artist. I think you have to actually put your, the work in. Talk about, um, well, th- this is just advice for me, honestly. When it comes to relevance for like a plot point or like just an overall idea of a concept, do you try to predict the future or do you try to like make something relevant right now? I never think of it that way. Mm-hmm. When I did the Jake in Progress, you know, that sort of 24 concept idea, I think, was ahead of its time. Yeah. And I think there were several shows over the years after that that tried to do a version of, like, a real-time TV show. Mm-hmm. So I think I was too ahead of the curve at that point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think whenever you try to do something that you think is going to sell or you think is the thing that people are going to want, I think that that is potentially a pitfall that will become something that makes it feel familiar or like you're trying to be something, it goes back to the authenticness. Mm-hmm. And I think what people respond to, especially now in Hollywood and the way that the world is changing, I think that the most you you can be, and the most authentic you can be to your voice and the things you're interested in, I think that is what people are going to respond to, rather than trying to think of, well, what's the next best big idea on a spaceship with the two people shooting each other. I don't right. know. Like you, you, I think that authenticity matters. Right. That's why I go back to, and again, it's like I look at the projects that I've had made over the years versus the things that sold versus the things that got to the one yard line or whatever it is. I think you just got to write the thing that you care about. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're worried too much about what are the people going to want or what's, what, how am I going to anticipate the next curve, I, I don't think that's winning. Mm-hmm. I like that. I do too. I do too. Because I mean, it's impossible almost to predict what will and will not hit. And I think that also goes back to authenticity. If you're not writing what's authentic to you and you're just trying to put something out there that you think is going to hit or not hit. Right. I mean, that's, that's not a way to guarantee success. Yeah. And I I mean, look, there's lots of examples of this. Like top of my head, you'd look at Quentin Tarantino. Like Quentin Tarantino made his mark because no one was doing what Quentin Tarantino was doing. To this day, whenever you see a movie that feels like a Quentin Tarantino ripoff, you know it's a Tarantino ripoff. Right, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and, and yet, when you see a Tarantino movie, there's something about it that feels him. Mm-hmm. So I think, and I don't know why I'm using him as an example, but like he is somebody that's very definitively who he is. Right. And I think when you think of the people, at least when I think of the people that I admire, the people that I look up to over the years, they do have a version of their own voice and their own thing. And I think those are the things that cut through the clutter. And I do think there have been a lot of things over the years that I have sold that it feels good to sell it and it feels good to make money off of that, but that don't get made. And I think it's because they, they fall somewhere in that lane of feeling safe or familiar. Right. Or like... It just doesn't elevate above the rest because it wasn't something uniquely me. And I think the fact that Zoe's came from such a personal place, mm-hmm. that it ties into everything I love with musicals and romantic comedy and emotion and family and all that stuff, I do think there's some reason why this one was able to cut through the clutter in a way that other ones haven't. And I think it's because it checks a lot of boxes that feel very specific to me. And I think that when you find the thing that feels uniquely you, that's the thing that makes you special. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage younger writers to always try to be thinking about how to cultivating their own voice, 
trying to think about writing what matters to them. And I think it's that passion and that stuff that stands out more than the stuff that feels derivative or the thing that you think people want. Mm -hmm. uh, another piece of advice I would give is that so many times over the years, I've, I've, allowed, I've, I've been open to reading other people's stuff. And I've said, if you want me to read something of yours, I'm happy to read it. My one caveat to you is you can't get defensive with me when I give you my thoughts. Exactly. And I'd have a lot of young writers who I would read, and because I, after I won that Young Playwrights Festival, I became a mentor and a director for that Young Playwrights Festival for a long time. So from that, but also just from people I would meet along the way who said they wanted to be writers, I'd read their stuff. And I, I've been in a lot of writers' rooms, and I've done this a long time now, and I, I think I have an, a certain degree of aptitude of giving notes and thoughts on projects. And I, I know I'm only one person, but I'm trying to be objective. I don't have any agenda. And I can't tell you how many young writers I would read their stuff, and they'd get so defensive with me when I would give them their my thoughts and their notes. And I'm like, you know what? That doesn't um, engender goodwill. It doesn't make me want to work with you. And it's right. not going to make other people want to work with you. So I think as much as you want to be protective of your material, you do also have to be open and you have to be open to the notes and you have to be open to hearing where maybe things aren't working. And certainly if you get five people to read something of yours and maybe they all have a different note, but the note is all stemming around the middle of act two mm -hmm. or the note is all stemming around the female lead or something. You, it, there's something that's worth listening to there. And so I think that you just have to be open to criticism. You have to learn how to take that in and develop a thick skin in the process. And it's a cliche, but so much of writing is rewriting. And I do think that things get better the more that you work on them and the more that you hone them. And it doesn't mean that the first words out of... I used to think when I started writing these plays when I was 15 or 16 years old that the first words that I wrote down was gold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now I've learned that my whole process is all about rewriting and figuring out and outlining and right. really taking your time. And so those are just a few pieces of advice I would have. I, I can't think of any better way to end advice than that. Yeah, I seriously. mean, just be real, be you, be who you are and, and don't have an ego when somebody, when exactly. somebody is trying to help, you know, let them help. Like, this is a business. Exactly. Exactly. Oh man. Listen, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking. It's just been outstanding, man. Um, thank you. I'm glad I could, uh, offer some words of pearls of wisdom after all my hard-earned years of rejection <laughs> <laughs> well rejection's part of it right exactly. i mean come on man well this is the thing i mean you ask any actor any writer any director other than the top three you know the anomaly two people that have had all this that have only ridden the wave of success the entire way through mm -hmm. it's always ups and downs it's always peaks and valleys and it's always about how do we I mean, we didn't even talk about any of this stuff, but, you know, how do you, how do you uh, define yourself and how much are you defined by your work and how much of your self-worth is rooted in the work and all of that because it, you're, the entertainment business is a business of highs and lows and there is lots of rejection even for the most successful people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, well, I, you know, I'm glad you brought that up though, because you do have to be able to ride the lows as well as the highs, like you said. And I think, I mean, all, all kidding aside from the joking that we were doing just a, a few minutes ago, but I, I mean, really you have to know when to step back. Like your whole existence can't rely on what you do or don't do in this job or in this industry. There has to be more than that, right? Correct. So if we were going to have a much longer conversation about it, I would talk about <laughs> balance. I would talk about 
Uh, I would talk about not defining yourself by your work. I would talk about uh, grass is greener and FOMO and all the disadvantages of that. I would talk about compare and despair, all of those negative things that fundamentally don't help you or help the work. There you go. Well, that sounds like a second appearance on the show for us. (laughs) Exactly. We're going to have to have you back just to talk about that. Whenever you guys want me. Oh, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Let's definitely make sure, though, everybody knows where to follow you because you, I'm guessing. We'll be live tweeting again on Sunday. Uh, I will live tweet every week, and also I only have like 300 followers right now, so I really need to up my game. Oh, there you go. So, all right, tell everybody where they can follow you. Where can they find you on uh, Instagram? I believe it's at Austin. I believe it's at Austin Winsberg. Okay. Uh, w i n s b e r g. Uh, the show is Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. It's every Sunday at 9 on NBC, and you can also watch episodes on NBC.com and on Hulu. Right now, the entire second episode is up on YouTube as well. I think there's probably some other sites that it is on right now. Um, and, uh, yeah, so please please watch and uh, join me on Twitter, Yeah, <laughs> which I've never said before. I've never used those words before. Right. That was a great pitch. That was exactly. a great pitch for Twitter right there. <laughs> First on the Inside the Crazy Ant Farm. <laughs> Well, listen, man, thanks so much for taking the time, like I said, to talk to us today. And it it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun and uh, just continued success for Zoe's. I think it's going to be a huge hit for a lot of years. Uh, I can't wait to see where it goes and and, and how the storyline plays out, man. And just we could not be more happy for you. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for the support. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Have a great rest of the week. And like I said, open invite, dude. Anytime you want to come back on, more than welcome. You got it. I'll take you up on it. All right, (laughs) man. Take care now. See ya. Thanks, guys.